Aloha and welcome to HMA Connect, the new podcast program of the Hawaii Medical Association. Established in 1856, HMA is dedicated to serving physicians, their patients, and the community. Today's podcast is an interview with Dr. Bernard Robinson. A retired U.S. Army colonel and longtime HMA member, Dr. Robinson was the chief of neurosurgery at Tripler Army Medical Center until 1984 and chief of the neuroscience department with Kaiser Permanente Hawaii region until 2005. He continues to work as a neurosurgeon and expert neurosurgical consultant at Tripler and has authored two books, one detailing his journey as a neurosurgeon and another on the history of neurosurgery in Hawaii. Thank you very much, Dr. Robinson, for coming into the Hawaii Medical Association office, your home, your clubhouse, and sharing a bit of time with us and have a conversation today. You know, as we begin, please share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to pursue a career in medicine. You were quite the uh, trailblazer, as you shared in your 2017 book, Two Ropes, but I think it'd be great for our listeners to hear from your own voice some of your story. Well, certainly, Mark. I'll uh, give you my country boy approach to describing myself. Uh, I never set out to be a trailblazer. I just wanted to do something to make life worth living. I was born in the solidly segregated South. As an Afro-American, that made my challenges substantial. But I'm happy to report that in spite of the challenges of that circumstance, there was enough agreement across racial lines that allowed me to find that pathway to being a trailblazer that I didn't recognize myself as being, but I certainly am. The book Two Ropes actually describes my journey and my wife's journey because we were together from very early ages and we were raised in the same community my house was less than a five-minute walk from her house. Our families knew each other. And so our journey is a journey together. And even in the book, Two Ropes, I mentioned that my wife could have easily been a co-author, but she elected not to uh, be a co-author, probably for fear that she didn't want to take in the credit or blame for what the book might cost. <laughs> but anyway, it pretty much describes the journey. And as uh, the journey progressed, and as I sit here today, I look back and I'd see that I didn't go far enough doing some of the things I wanted to do. But some think that I did a few things that were notable. And the one that uh, stands out is this business of being the first Afro-American trained by government, the US military, to be a brain surgeon, also known as neurosurgeon. And that should capitalize it a bit, but I would like to make my final point is that as a neurosurgeon, I managed to stay married to the same woman of our youth, and she stayed uh, with me on the journey, and uh, we still are together trying to do good things for mankind, for ourselves and for our country. No, it's an amazing story, and one can't help but ask, why did you choose neurosurgery. I mean, that's like the high end of the food chain, right? It is, but actually I didn't start out with the idea that I'd be a neurosurgeon. I wanted to be a physician, and that was like number three on my list. I would have rather been an airplane pilot, 
or a musician, but medicine seemed to be more feasible. And that was because we had a private practitioner, uh, you would call him a family practice doc before the specialty was created, but he was a general practitioner named Dr. Joyner. Dr. Joyner made house calls, and he was a real tangible role model. I decided I wanted to be a physician, but I was going to be like Dr. Joyner. But when I got to medical school, I met those guys called surgeons. And they impressed me to the point where I decided I want to be one of those guys. <laughs> and so it fit my temperament. And when I met those guys, I also did a sort of a mini internship as a medical student. They call it externships, working with the nurse surgical service. And my real mentor, Dr. Jesse Barber, who was the first American-born Afro-American neurosurgeon, board certified, uh, the first black neurosurgeon was an African, a real African neurosurgeon who came to America to train and actually integrated the Caucasian system, became a neurosurgeon in the United States of America. Dr. Barber was trained in Toronto because they were not generally training black neurosurgeons in American training programs. So my journey with Dr. Barber as a mentor, and he actually led me to looking at the military as a place to do my training. And therefore, I ended up starting to be a doctor, just a general practitioner, ended up getting influenced by these giant of personalities. <laughs> and uh, I think neurosurgeons don't decide to really do that in my day. They just find themselves doing it. And so I don't even ever think I chose to be a neurosurgeon. My mentors helped persuade me to go in that direction. Here I am. So what time frame are we talking about? Well, I went to medical school from 1969 to 1974, and uh, that's the general time frame. And things changed gradually regarding the racial situation in America. They changed gradually all that time, uh, mostly upward and sometimes a dip. <laughs> and so we won't talk about the dip, but the time frame we're talking about as far as my medical training is in 1969 and finished being a, uh, my residency in 1980. And there was a whole lot of excitement happening in between those dates, as the book Two Ropes mentions. And then later on, actually last year, I believe, you published a book on the history of Hawaii neurosurgery. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, I got interested in the history of Hawaii neurosurgery because when I was president of the HMA in 2016, I wanted to look into the history of HMA a little bit. And I found that the HMA had had a neurosurgeon, Dr. John Lowry, who had been president of the HMA, I think in the mid to late 70s. But I couldn't find much more history of Hawaii neurosurgery. I actually had met the first neurosurgeon, Dr. Ralph Cloward. He's the first. He wasn't Hawaii-born, but his family moved to Hawaii when he was a kid. He ended up uh, becoming the first full-time Hawaii neurosurgeon, and I knew him. I met him when I came to Hawaii with the military. My sense is that the history didn't exist, so I Googled it, and they confirmed there's no such thing as history of Hawaii neurosurgery readily available. So I took it upon myself to do the task. It took me a, a few months to really decide to do it, but uh, I did it, and I'm glad I did. Now, your path not only was in neurosurgery and medical practice here in Hawaii, but you also embraced a number of leadership positions. 
one of which was president of the Hawaii Medical Association, as you said, in what, 2016. Could you share a little bit about what was your path toward embracing more and more leadership positions? Because that's quite a, a shift from just being at the edge of medical practice and then leading as well an organization like HMA at that time. Well, I think I'm a creature of habit. They say the best way to get something done is do it yourself. Unfortunately, <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. And when, uh, my entire career, my entire life, I find myself being in a bit of a leadership position. Even when I was a kid, my older cousins had difficulty with me just following the rules because they were the rules. I'd see some way to do it better and I want to do it. And so I pursued it regardless of the rules. So even before the HMA presidency, I found myself being a department head at Kaiser Permanente and on the board of directors, and I actually had to turn down the, the attempt to draft me into being medical director because I recognized that I am a neurosurgeon, and that's what I really enjoyed mm -hmm. doing. And so I didn't want to get sucked into administration because at that level, you have to really give up something in order to, you know, be good at it. And I didn't want to give up neurosurgery. At one time, Kaiser actually got to the point, largely to my efforts, to recognize the value of having their physicians being part of the HMA. And I wasn't the first. Uh, there were other docs, and one who also became a HMA president long before I did, who suggested that maybe you should look at this. And actually, I adopted the attitude that physicians have more in common by far than they have differences, even though they act like they're protecting their turf. We should be one for all, all for one to make healthcare better for the community. We have these many, many silos, and we tend to uh, pull each other down as opposed to help each other to be successful. And that doesn't help physicians, it doesn't help the community. So my accent to leadership in the HMA had a lot to do with we must have a place where physicians can be themselves to help the cause of all of us. And so the HMA political realm became a way in which I can still stay viable and try to do what I think doctors and healthcare providers should always do. They need to create a better healthcare environment for what product they create for the community. Because as I had the insight of seeing and the wisdom, that sooner or later, when you're no longer practicing medicine, you're gonna be pure consumers of that which you've created. And so therefore, even now as a retired physician, I find myself still trying to help that cause so the physicians can have a seat at the table of deciding how healthcare infrastructure is to be made so that we can create something worth having as a consumer of healthcare. You have an incredible vision and energy. Uh, one of the things I've learned, you know, Dr. Robinson, from interacting with you is you're, I think, an eternal optimist. I am. <laughs> you really are. And because of that optimism, obstacles seem to sort of be an opportunity for you just to open up a new chapter in your life. But you've seen some incredible transitions. I mean, currently, I mean, you say you're retired as a physician, but you're still very active. You are currently one of the HMA delegates to the American Medical Association. But that organization itself, in your time 
as a physician has evolved tremendously as well. I mean, what are the changes that you've seen at the medical association level nationally that really strike you as important? Interesting you asked that question because I am right now involved as the AMA delegate and I'm also still involved with the National Medical Association. So again, historically, we have the National Medical Association, which was created because Afro-American physicians were not allowed to join the American Medical Association. So here I am, a member of both. And at the last AMA meeting that we all attended together in June, we had an opportunity to see what almost became the third Afro-American to become president of the AMA, but something went awry and, and that wasn't successful. But she had two predecessors, as I've implied, a black male and a black female, and they became Afro-American presidents of the American Medical Association. In the meantime, there's the National Medical Association still going on with the vision that you must have Afro-American predominantly organization to help buffer this deal about blacks not being able to join the AMA. But, as I said, with two black presidents of the AMA, we have these two national organizations. And so they're both integrated now. So that's the progression. I saw the end of the analogy with we're making progress and so if you look way into the future, I've often in polite circles suggested that sooner or later, since docs are being really browbeaten by our current political environment and healthcare in general, we take the blame for everything wrong and someone else is making the decisions about healthcare other than physicians. But physicians are the symbol and we take the blame for a broken healthcare system in America. America has a great health care system, but it needs to be better organized so that it can focus on progress as opposed to battling political issues. So here now we have the American Medical Association and the National Medical Association. And the American Medical Association actually has a spot in the House of Delegates, of which I sit now, for the National Medical Association, so they're coming together, so who knows where this is all going to evolve. I won't say more, because it could be politically incorrect. <laughs> and God forbid that Dr. Robinson should ever yeah, say anything absolutely. politically incorrect. <laughs> yeah, I got too much in my wheelbarrow on the political incorrectness already. So. You know, Dr. Robinson, as you look back on your really distinguished career, both in medicine and in leadership, I like to ask the question, what advice would you give both to your younger self and to younger people today considering a career in medicine? Well, in general, looking back, I don't think I would have a choice to do anything differently than what I've done. I would probably be a nicer person. Uh, I'd probably not, I'd work harder not to irritate people when I'm trying to make something good happen. I'd be a little more diplomatic. But in general, you have to have something that you really believe in that you stand for, especially if you're going to be a physician. Physicians have to step up to the front line and be ready to sacrifice. Sacrifice is essential if you're going to do what you really feel is necessary as a physician because you're a servant. I don't care how you cut it or how proud you are of your achievements academically or clinically, you're still a servant. 
and the patient is always the number one priority. Not the doctor, not the nurse, not the hospital. But in order to make that happen, you really do have to sacrifice. And that's probably the simple, general advice I would give anyone looking to be a physician. You aren't working to be something great. You're working to do something great for the patient and the systems that take care of patients. Hobbies. I know you're incredibly busy, but I also know you have some hobbies. You and Mrs. <laughs> Robinson. Yeah. You care to share? Well, my personal hobby is fishing. But I have to say that in Hawaii, I'm a lousy fisherman. <laughs> I, think this, I blame it on the fish being scarce and being overfished. And it costs a lot to get on the boat where you have a better chance to catch fish. And not that I'm cheap, but I grew up in Florida where fishing was one of the cheapest sports you could have. And not only did you enjoy fishing, you enjoyed eating the fish. I'm going to shift now to one that's easier to talk about is dancing. And I'm so glad that my wife isn't here because I can tell my story. She has a different version, <laughs> but, but they're similar. But, you know, I was an egghead in school. And it looked like all the kids in my neighborhood was Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, meaning they could really dance. I was terrified of dance floors, absolutely terrified. But my wife is a natural dancer, and she just loves dancing. When we got married, she assumed erroneously that since I was black, we're in the black community, that I was a dancer. She had no idea that I could not dance and that not only could I not dance, I was terrified to be on the dance floor because I didn't want to look stupid doing my little something that, you know, you can't be proud of. So in med school, I had plenty of excuses. I was always gone, no time for parties, but every now and then they had a party that you couldn't miss. And she found out that I couldn't dance at one of those parties. And then she gave me an ultimatum. I don't really take ultimatums too well, but she said, my husband must dance. Fortunately, the hustle was coming out, do the hustle, you know. It was a new dance, so nobody really could do it well. And I was able to pick out a few steps and, and literally orchestrate the steps. And I was able to get on the dance floor doing the hustle. And so I got over the fear of the dance floor, but I still couldn't do the jitterbug or the swing dance. And so we got to Hawaii, and now I'm, re I'm in a practice, and I do have a little more time than I had when I was a resident. So I had to learn to dance a little better than just the hustle. <laughs> so I did learn how to do the swing dance through the Hawaii Ballroom Association. Because my wife wasn't a teacher, but she definitely could dance. So I was at the Palladium, where the Hawaii Ballroom Dance Association has these periodic big dances, big dance floor. And I was standing there on the sideline watching as a lady that was my senior at the time said, what's the matter, Sonny? You don't know how to do the swing dance? I said, no, I never could get it. She said, simple. Five minutes, she had me doing it like I'd been doing it forever. Plus, I had an Emmy, I think. Well... That was the beginning of me and my wife finding some place to dance, and we do that quite frequently, even to this very day. And we can even have really major arguments while we're dancing and smile, and nobody ever knows it. Well, I know at AMA in June, you know, with Dr. Pratt and you and Mrs. Robinson, you two got dancing right away when the live music started and you had the opportunity. Interestingly enough, the dance made it comfortable for me as the advisor to the HMA regarding COVID <laughs> functions. 
They say, we can have a party in November coming because the dance floor was packed. And even though everybody went in wearing masks, we all sort of shed them as we were getting hot, sweaty, dancing. And to my knowledge, we didn't come out with a big super spreader event. So it's something symbolized that maybe we can lighten up a little bit and have a little more social gatherings. Plus, I have to admit, I had a little more inside information because uh, you may have heard me say in the past, a friend of mine's neurosurgeon in South Africa, when Omicron hit, and it hit in South Africa first, I called him about a month and a half later, said, tell me, how's Omicron treating South Africa? He says, really interesting. He said, the ICU rates are decreasing, the death rates are decreasing, even though the infection rate is off the charts. So our assumption is that Omicron variants are less deadly, less virulent uh, than the previous uh, COVID variants. And so that was wishful thinking then, but it later on panned out to be to t take traction. And with the treatments we've got now, the vaccination rate going up, it's less of a fear than before, but we're still sensitive to the infection rate, almost to an exaggeration. We still got to use common sense, the masks, distancing, sanitizing. But I think with God's help, we're going to be able to get back into doing things that human beings like to do, and that's getting together without fear of killing each other, <laughs> by breathing on each other. Well, as always, Dr. Robinson, such a pleasure to have a conversation with you, and thank you for giving an opportunity to share you know, your history, your experience with our listeners. And thank you so much for everything you do for Hawaii and for the Hawaii Medical Association. Well, I appreciate you saying those things and being brave enough to have me do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for listening to HMA Connect. To learn more about the Hawaii Medical Association and future podcasts, please visit hawaiimedicalassociation.org.